0: I'm David Matson, and this is Primetime 89, a chance for me to visit and talk story, check in and catch up with classmates from a generation ago, finding out how they're doing, where they are, how they got there, and what experiences they've had along the way. Recently, I had a chance to catch up with Guy Nita. If you ask either of us how we met, it would probably start out something like, Well, you see, there was this girl. And while those relationships didn't last beyond high school, our friendship did. In college, we shared an interest in motorcycles, and I went flying with him one spring break in Arizona. Later, I'd admire his budding career as a commercial airline pilot as I made my way through medical school and residency. Now, at this point in our lives, we can pause and take stock of what we've done so far. Yeah, so what, what you been up to? Like, since, since uh, the last time we talked, did you, did you get up in the air? Because you were, uh, you, you were like, off for 30 hours or something? Uh, the funny thing, I was dreaming of flying when I woke up. Mm.
1: The weirdest thing about I dreaming of flying this space-age Concorde, and I was like, oh, okay. woke up like, what the hell? I got a Zoom meeting. <laughs>
0: So, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> Guy, tell me a little bit about where you grew up. I was born in Maui. We moved to Idaho for like
1: two or three years. And my parents were still going to college. They had us young, so they're in, still in college. So, I think my mom was like 20, and my dad was like 21 or something. So we lived in like the country, bro. It's pretty cool. Yeah, we had like a country house. Um, I remember our beds being on the underground. We moved to Kauai with my dad's parents. We lived in Kikaha since kindergarten. But I remember going to Waimea Canyon. So
0: what was that like, you know, growing up on Kauai? I just looked forward to fishing every weekend. Camping. We're- where did you get your start in fishing? Like, w- you know, well, because my
1: grandpa fished. My grandpa was like, uh, he loved going for uluas, you know, just whatever, papillos, cast, and we should camp. So that was a big part of our life, just camping, you know.
0: Camping. Yeah, so yeah. was was the fishing
1: shore fishing or? Uh, sure fish, fish? Shore fishing, shore casting, yeah. And, and, you know, catching fish was. Almost, almost like a byproduct of what the experience because, you know, just camping, making the fire, walking on the beach at night looking for stuff. And, you know, just as a little kid, bro, it was so much fun, you know, with all your cousins and stuff like that, you know.
0: Oh, yeah. So That's that cool. was,
1: oh, that was a big part of my
0: life. I mean, you saw it when we did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, <laughs> was that the beach that you used to go to? That's the beach. We used to go to the all the time. Marshalls. Holly,
1: yes. Over. Oh my, I went, I'm going senile. Yeah, so Polihale, you know all that stuff, Queens, Queens Beach, and all that. Yeah. I remember
0: when we went? But we had good fun.
1: That it's just sitting on the beach and enjoying it, bro. that's that's the experience, man. Yeah. And then if you caught a fish, like yeah, that's like icing on the cake. Yeah. Even better. Yeah. So yeah. did
0: you have your uh, your go kart back then too?
1: Yeah. I did take it a couple times, like because I remember riding it looking for firewood and stuff like that. I can't remember how many times we took it camping with us. So we just kind of fished more.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you remember? You remember that video clip that we got when we were, uh you know, doing the ramp on the. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you put that in your podcast somehow. <laughs> yeah, we would. Yeah, uh, all all they'll uh, hear is the scream. <laughs> Oh, that was the best, man. That, <laughs> that was, was awesome. Yeah, it's just so cool that we uh, we were able to
1: capture that that moment, man. We used to play uh, football on the street, right? Like little kid yeah. time. Light pole to light pole, yeah? You know, yeah. that's the cute. And I remember tourists used to always come into the uh, valley. And I said, oh, which way is it? is it to Koke? I would send them to Kapos.
0: <laughs> you know, and I just
1: like, I, as an adult now, I'm just thinking, bro, that was so nasty. You know, but as a kid, you just ah, that's so funny. But like, oh man, I wish I uh, had more integrity back then. You know, because
0: <laughs> but you know,
1: we used to play with all, all our friends. We used to think, ah, wow, send them the wrong way. Like, okay, oh man.
0: Okay, so um, so then you need to come in there, right? Ninth grade, yep. Ninth grade Nine. with your brother and stuff. Yep. Eighty-seven
1: grad, so two years older. So I'll go, I guess I'll go too because he's going. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: And it's a lot easier getting into Kamehameha School from Kauai.
0: So for the four years you were there, how do you think people would remember you, you know, your, your classmates from high school? I haven't changed. I, I feel like um, the
1: same exact person in high school. I, I'm still shy. I still think of myself as nerdy, even though I wasn't putting out nerdy numbers on my report cards. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can say that much <laughs> <laughs> I still smile a lot I think everyone tells me I still smile a lot so ninth grade my first day of speech class right we had to do a, a 5 minute impromptu of ourselves Dave I, I, whoever was in my class will remember this I believe because uh, to me it affected me so much so I stood up there I went up there but I was like dying Dave I was like I stood up there, I looked at everybody, my mouth couldn't open. And I just told the teacher, I'll take the F and I walked back to my seat. Mm. Cause I couldn't, that's how shy I, I am. You know, it's like people don't understand how shy I am. And sometimes too, which I feel bad because is that I think people take me as being stuck up, but it's not because I, I remember a couple of times I seen some classmates at the airport when I, after getting off my airplane, and they came up to talk to me and I'm like, I'm so scared, but it's like shy that I hardly talk. If they hear this, I hope if I ever talked to you at the airport that I wasn't being stuck up, I was just super shy. I don't know what it is, I just shell up.
0: You didn't say very much. Once someone got to know you, there was a lot of interesting stuff that came out, so. Oh, I appreciate that, Dave. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, that's true, that's true. <laughs> I'll add to your list a um, great sense of humor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got, you're super funny. If you could have one of your former teachers be your child's teacher, who would it be and why? For me, the one teacher that stuck out in my mind my whole life,
1: the hope my entire life would be Miss Melon. It's interesting because that's the only teacher's name I remember too really loved uh, her approach. She's like a mom. She's like a mo- she was like a mother. She understood. There's like a loud, um, gravelly voice. I appreciated that style. I, I wanted to, what it made me want to do is try harder.
0: One thing that I've always admired about Guy from the very beginning was that easygoing, carefree, joking, self-deprecating way about him. How he just seems to go with the flow. But at the same time, he was as accomplished and successful in whatever he set out to do. That's one of the things about him that I really admire.
1: In college, my first year, so I was like on this, I forget what they call it. It's like the opposite
0: of the Dean's list.
1: It's almost like the, uh, you're going to get food out of the college list. And it hit me because, you know, we're just partying every day, right? That's all we look forward to is just burning brain cells, right? I just remember my mom calling her, hey, you know, dad and I, we spent, a, not to get the guilt trip, but it was like, they're hard-earned money for me to party. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, oh, you're so right. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I just remember just um, thinking, oh, man, I'm going to turn this around, man. I just got to turn it around. So I said, okay, one step, you know, one foot in the other, I'm just going to keep going in the other direction. You know what I mean? So just change your path, you know.
0: I think that's that's a part of, you know, maturing. And I went through the exact same thing. No, yeah. I think you and I had kind of the same kolohe-ness. a highly functional kolohe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I was more of a yeah. dysfunctional kolohe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in a weird way, I think it's super important to go through that mm-hmm. early in life and not later in life. You know, I kind of want my kids to get it out of their system early because if they do it older, then there's more repercussions. I say, I don't think you can go to
0: jail.
1: You actually affected me a lot. I, and I tell people this story. Uh, till this very day, I tell people this story. I said, I said you know, my friend and I, wow, we used to party every Thursday. We used to go to um, Moose's. University, remember that we should go to Moose's University because they had dollar drink nights or something. I think it was Thursdays, and I remember one night you told me, "Oh God, I don't like go Moose's anymore." Like I'm like, "What? What <laughs> you mean? How can you not want to go to Moose's?" Nah, I'm over the bar scene. I brought. I think we are only like 21. You know what I mean? We have so much bar life left in us. You know? <laughs> said, no, no, no. I, I think uh, I just want to drink at home. Oh, you know, I just want to sit home with a few of my friends, like, and that affected me. That my, at that moment, my mind, my way I thought of going out was different already. Like, oh, so i give you one on that one, baby. That affected me a lot, just changing the mindset. Maybe because you drank a lot more than I did
0: earlier in life. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I burnt out a lot earlier than that. Yeah, just one step at a time moving forward. Where do you get that insight from? I've always thought, because my mom,
1: of hard, she said, hey, you got to put hard work in. I, I never looked at myself as smart, but I always knew that, I, and I live, to this day, I live through this, um, this theory. It's like, if you put one foot ahead of the other, there's no way someone can stop you from getting to your destination. It's just one step, one step, one step. You know, and I remember even going to your house and um, I remember you had all these uh, chemistry formulas on your board. I was like, what the hell, Dave? What? Come on, Dave, man. Let's go park you know, you know, so, but I respected that. Like, wow, Dave is trying. You know what I mean? And look, you became a doctor, right? And to, I don't think people thought I was going to become a pilot too. Yeah. You know, so it's like... Um, I just believe, man, because like, I just get past this one test in flying. Because in to become a pilot, there's so many tests that I say, I just got to pass one test. Okay, I got past that one test. Next test. You know, so it's just one step, put another, and no one can stop you. If you – the only person can stop you yourself, right? So, like, even with jobs, that's the way I look, looked at Dubai. i just going to knock on every single door, every single door, into everyone's exhausted. And I'm gonna do it again and again until somebody lets me in. So that was my theory in life and I still live by that theory, yeah. You know, honestly, I, I believe um, because I wrestled, I think the coaches instilled you, brother, right, it's like it ain't over till it's over. Just everything in life is mental. And I think also jujitsu, because I think my, my, uh, one of my instructors told me when he spars, he spars like he's, he's gonna die you're trying to preserve your own life. So I think in that aspect, I've always kind of held that like, nothing can stop you. Only you yourself can stop yourself. You know what I'm saying? I just kind of envision that philosophy.
0: When you find something you love doing, you know it can make you feel exhilaration and excitement and happiness, even if there's frustration and terror and fear associated with it but no matter the cost, we keep it with us because of the joy it brings. That's what flying was for Guy, whose interest in aviation took off at an early age, and he never looked back. What's the connection between what you wanted to do in high school and, and what you're doing now? I knew
1: I wanted to be a pilot. I started flying at 14 years old, I believe. Yeah. One of my uncle's uh, friend was an instructor in Kauai. I started flying on Kauai, but I always was interested in flying on you know, my first flight. I was scared out of my mind. It was so scary, man. I was scared out of my mind because i I thought we were gonna die, so that was my first experience flying
0: <laughs>
1: and i'm and I'm afraid of heights too, so that's even worse. got the four year degree um all my pilot ratings, my- commercial ratings, and uh I Right. immediately when I graduated, I got a job working, uh, flying airplanes. So cause I was flying single engine airplanes uh, for commercially. But the hardest part was to get multi-engine time. That's the hardest time to get when you first start because most companies require you to have, I believe, 600 hours of multi-engine time for you to actually touch the controls for the insurance purposes. And how are you, you going to get that unless you the instruct, right? What happened was uh, I got about 1,000 hours flight time flying for Transair. That's right. I was the, probably the, um, one of the lower time captains over there flying the 402. So I applied for jobs up in the mainland. And that's when it really opened up on my, my flight career, flying for Ameriflight and SkyWest. And then I got hired at Hawaiian. So that's, that was the process. So I lived in Burbank, California for a little while. I lived uh, in Fresno, California. Yeah, for, for, so I, I moved a little bit, and I enjoyed it. I actually really enjoyed it. I enjoyed every single second of flying. Describe for me what a tough day at work would be like. Probably the hardest thing I have to deal with for flying is the time zones and getting rest. If it were a tough day at work, it's probably having to get around weather storms you know finding that smooth air because it can be hard to do that and something because of this fact that you have to deal with airspace and you know um stuff like that so you can run into problems with fuel you know so you don't want to ever run into that problem of having to go to your alternate airport you know so just making the i guess decisions is is uh the biggest thing yeah because it's big decisions that you have to make it's not like and now you can go you know let's park on the side of the cloud here and figure it out but you you're burning fuel like thousands of pounds per minute you know what I mean <laughs> so you' don't, it's not like you have the luxury of time yeah that's the problem so' it's, it, everything is um uh, managing managing your situation mm-hmm. and managing it with precise yeah with accurate um uh, decisions because if you don't make an accurate decision, it affects everything. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, like for example, if I had to divert, so if I'm going to Japan and I have to divert to say Korea, just for some, just to like, give me an example, now you're dealing with passport issues. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're not really didn't expect you to land in Korea, and now you have all these people who are going to Japan are landing in Korea. You have passport issues, you have hotel issues. So just a bunch of other things, parking gates, you know,
0: it's a lot of things that people don't think of, you know. All right, so tell me, what's what's a great day at work like? Man, a great day at work is zero hiccups, A to B,
1: no issues, a perfectly smooth flight, clear weather, good good first-class food because we get to eat first-class food, (laughs) <laughs> and then getting i like going to japan every so often so oh, no. then getting to japan and landing and having my uh, udon increase my blood pressure
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah that's uh, perfect blood you know flying with and flying with people you love flying with in the cockpit i
0: try to get along with
1: everybody you know sometimes you don't like the guy's personality or whatever wow that can be a long flight
0: Right, now that you bring it up, so what the heck do you guys do in the cockpit for that whatever, six or eight hours? <laughs> you, know, you just read a magazine, you put autopilot, you read a magazine and you look up every once in a while or? Yeah, we talk story. Uh, we're constantly monitoring the, uh, the gauges though. I mean, cause,
1: because even though the autopilot's on, you have input in, in, input in, input out, right? So if you put bad input in the computer, you're getting that input out. So you gotta know how to program that computer too. You know, some airport identifiers might be so close. Like, so like, P-H-N-L is Honolulu, but you might have P-H-M-L, but could be, mean something else like could be Guam, mm-hmm. you know? So just that little thing you input in the computer, you're going to a different destination. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that's why we always do a legs check. So we always make sure Every, so in, in a flight from, say, to here to Tokyo, you might have uh, 20 legs, meaning like little segments of lat longs. So we always check our lat longs, right? And to confirm that we're going in that right direction and that track, because if you, if you fly off that track, you might get intercepted by fighter pilots and say, hey, you're going into military airspace. So <laughs> that's important. That's why we ha- always have checks. And we're whenever we're flying, we're making sure... We're doing, going the right direction and the plane's doing what it's supposed to do, so...
0: I was also interested in aviation before going into medicine. This rubbed off onto my son, David Matthew, who is an aircraft commander in the U.S. Coast Guard out of CAS Sacramento. Guys know David for a long time. In fact, I've got a photo of guy carrying him when he was a newborn. Recently, the two had a chance to meet up and talk about pilot things and what a career in commercial aviation is like, let's listen in to their conversation.
2: Hey, Uncle. <laughs> hey, how's it? Hey, pretty good. How about you? Good, good. Hey, why do you want to become a pilot? Top
1: Gun. Top Gun, and yeah. I, was, I, was, I was, you know what, that's it. I want to be a pilot. That was, the, that was my boom, I'm going to be a pilot because of Top Gun. I always loved airplanes. Just the thought of controlling the aircraft. Like that. Because I wanted to actually be a military pilot, um, but my eyes went bad in college. When I was uh, 19, my eyes went bad. So at that time in the military, you didn't have that waiver for your eyes. Quiet Airlines were already flying. I actually had uh, a couple uh, lieutenant colonels take me down to the guard to, to speak to the colonel. And he said, you're already 28. Uh, there's no way we can get you in time because it's a two-year background check or whatever. But he said, oh, you're too old already. So like, ah, so that was kind of bummed. But it is what it is. I'm not, I don't regret it. it just, um, I just, I would have loved to fly fighters. My dream was always the um, Tomcats, but I would have loved to fly the 15s at
2: least. Yeah. yeah. I got to say the same thing for me. Uh-huh. And same reaction. It was Top Gun. Yeah, I mean, that made me watch it way too many times as a kid, but that movie is timeless. Yeah. Yeah. So, as you kind of got your interest in, in becoming a, a pilot, uh, how did you actually go through the process of, you know, learning uh, to fly? Okay. So, for me, okay,
1: because the way my brain works, I need structure. I actually started flying at a privately owned pri- uh, flight school. The way they structured it, I had a hard time with it because it was like, hey, go read this book, read that book, and, and yeah, just, just read as much as you can, basically, right? I, I read about how Embry-Riddle approached flight training. I knew that's the way I'm going to learn. So again, I think that's important to have structure.
2: Okay. So you kind of start off in Hawaii, wander around yep. a little bit, move to the mainland, got more experience. And yep. then eventually you got the hours to build up and apply for the airlines. And yep. I think really got picked so, up.
1: Right, right. Exactly. And you got to keep charging. Low. So I believe the, the hours you're flying right now is really good hours. You're doing a lot of um, multi-engine time, right? Yeah. all. Multi, and you guys are doing a lot of instrument flying.
2: Yeah.
1: That's good. And you're doing flying turbines too. So you're flying jet engines basically. So that's. Even double better. So we have a lot of military pilots at at uh, in the airlines. I think also because of a lot of quality pilots come out of the military because you have to because they, you guys you guys will um, wash out. That's why
2: the margin for error is a little bit a little bit tighter with military. I would say so. Oh, yeah. yeah, they're <laughs> knew a lot more about this that you know staying on this heading, staying on this altitude making sure that you're doing everything and not accepting a little bit of, you know, being off altitude above or below at all. If I had
1: 10,000 hours flying a Cessna 172 uh, around the island in pure, you know, no clouds, I'd I'd pick the guy with 500 hours flying a multi-engine turbo aircraft in hard IFR weather. That's I would choose the guy with the lower time because of his quality of its time. You know, so and even if you look at a lot of the fighter pilots, when they apply to an airlines, they probably have like maybe a thousand hours after flying 20 years in the jet in that in the F-15, because the the mission's only like 45 minutes at a time, right?
2: Yeah, very small fuel tanks, um, very fast fuel burn. So yeah. That equates to not a lot of flying time a lot
1: of Flying time yeah you might get like what two hours a week maybe
2: three four hours a week maybe yeah it's By very fighter yeah they do a lot of low level stuff so they do a lot of briefings they probably brief more before they fly or exactly yeah. flying oh, yeah
1: yeah and after you fly too you briefing again like another four hours so yeah it's a, I give those guys credit i mean it's like it's a lot of uh briefing per flight time How did you get into becoming
2: an airline pilot afterwards
1: i just knew that hours was the biggest thing getting hours and getting quality
2: hours so if i flew
1: in hard weather i figured i'd be more marketable than flying vfr weather all the time and they say if you can survive then you'll probably be a good pilot later on you know like if you live through all that you know so but yeah, that's how I, f- I figured my path would be like, uh, get my, my most important time was multi-engine time. And where I was flying, you know, I flew cargo,
2: and I flew for commuters, and um, then I got to Hawaii. What's one of the most valuable lessons that you've learned since you even started flying Cessnas? Never take anything for granted. So it's not like one of those,
1: I'm telling you, it's like, just speaking from experience, it's like,
2: mm.
1: once you get your guard down, that's when things go astray. I'd say just double check everything and kind of always um get reference points like I always ask you, what would you do in this situation? Well, what could you have done differently? For example, we're flying to Vegas one night in the middle of the night, boom, wow. the cockpit starts lighting up like oh. And because I, I used to struck too before on the 717 and I used to watch people, they panic sometimes, right? So yeah. like dude, why? Are you panicking? You know what I mean? Because the plane's still flying. Yeah. If the plane's still flying, you're still alive. So that's the reference point right there What I'm talking about. Hey, how would you deal with this situation? None of us are just born like this. We, We have to kind of be told or see or get experiences like,
2: oh, okay. I see. I see. You know? Yeah. There's a few times and I think a good way to put it might be being complacent. In the plane. Yes, exactly. Well said. And to your point about just being calm in the plane, when I laugh about it, it gives me a time to
1: pause, just totally get my mind off of it. And then, okay, we have a dual engine fare. Let's start the APU,
2: you know? Yeah. Something. And a lot of what they actually tell us to do is no fast hands in the cockpit at all yeah aviate navigate and then communicate you know yeah. and it always yeah. works yeah if you don't do the first one the other two don't matter everyone's different how
1: they lead the cop to run the cockpit. yeah i let the fo or ro do what you do man i mean because hey they're, they're qualified i'm not going to second guess you but we're going to run checklists because you got to have that trust unless it's like inverted <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember one time I was flying uh an island air. Man, this guy made a super crazy approach on like so it went off. Yeah. And I didn't say a thing. He said it to me. Uh maybe I shouldn't have done the approach like that. Like, okay. He taught himself. Yeah. You know, so for me I like them to realize it and then fix it for themselves. If not, then I said, "Hey, I, I, that wasn't that." You know, I tried to try to say yeah. that, um, as politically as correct as possible without damaging them, because I don't want people to lose. Confidence. I think confidence is a key. Um, there's different confidence and cockiness as a pilot. You gotta be confident as a pilot, but cockiness is. I don't think there's anywhere any of that needed in the cockpit because that yeah. creates uh, a weird environment in the in the aircraft. I just flew with a, a F-18 pilot, a F-18 pilot. And man, I think he's, I think he's a full bird colonel, I want to say. I'm not sure. Wow. Man, because you would think he'd be cocky, but he's super humble and confident. But I fly with those guys all day, any day. That's the type of um, environment I thrive on at Hawaiian. I know a lot of people ask, does the plane always land itself? That's a big one. And... So we always land the plane by ourselves and take off the plane by ourselves. People don't even know we take off the plane by ourselves, but funny because people ask me, tell me, hey, you know, when you're flying, you're not really flying because the autopilot's on Said, Well, I, I beg to differ. So even though the autopilot's on, you're flying the autopilot. You're telling it how to fly. I think another thing that people don't know is that taking off is actually the most dangerous part of a flight than landing. They don't understand it, and they go, what? No, I said, that's the most dangerous part because you're slow, low, and if you lose an engine, that's the most skill you can have is managing that engine failure at a low level without crashing. All these experiences, it just uh, makes your decision-making more and more better.
2: But nice talking to you, Dave. Thanks for uh, answering a few of my questions. Don't worry, we
1: can talk anytime. I don't have much in my brain, but whatever I have in my brain, I can share.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about your family now.
1: Married Kanoi Gibson, and then I have two kids, Keelan and Rell. Rell is six, he's a girl, and Keelan is 10, he's a boy. Okay. So,
0: How did you meet Kanoi?
1: Her friends basically kind of introduced us in a way, yeah. I guess we became friends first. Yeah. Well, that's nice. I guess you really don't like your other half initially, right? Or do you? I guess you. I guess some people do.
0: Anyone who knows Guy knows that the ocean has always been a big part of his life, whether it be surfing or fishing or anything in between. And with Guy, he's not one to settle. If he can do it better, he will. And if he has to create a better tool. To have more fun fishing, he will. And he has. Tell me about your business.
1: So, I invented a couple of products for fishing just to help myself. You know, and um, basically, what happened was I made this product to help me rig fish, and uh, it was working pretty good. So, I was like, man, I wonder if I should try and sell it. So, I remember. I told my dad, hey dad, you think this is anybody who buy this? And my dad goes, nobody's going to buy that. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay, I'm going to make it anyway. So I made it and just knocked on what people are buying it. So I'm uh, stoked for anybody who's listening to this, bought my stuff. So yeah. We're still getting accounts, it's building, so coming out with new products. It's exciting. Yeah. I got to give correct credit on this part because when I first started, I was so obsessed with getting it going, I was super stressed because I felt like, you know, God gave me a gift that he um, put that information in my head how to make this thing, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to dishonor God and not jamming it, you know, going, going full blast for it. but Pinoy was the one that put her foot down. She said, God's not going to honor you if you don't honor him first. Because I was so obsessed with it that I couldn't see past it for a little while. You know what I mean? So, I was like, I thought I was honoring God by going for it, but it was the opposite. Yeah. I felt like he gave me this, this idea, you know, out of nowhere, that's super unique. And I wasn't going to capitalize on it. So I was totally in the wrong mindset. You know what I mean? And it's, it's kind of interesting too, you see, um, some bad parts of people's personalities too, in the business. Because, um, you know, some people don't want to see you succeed, you know, and so you see that, you know, it's like, it's interesting, like, ah, you just shake it off. So now my mindset is, it seems like it, business just came, fi- finds us. And my goal for this, honestly, um, the dream is to get to the point where I can have somebody, a big company buy us. But that's the dream.
0: Nita Fishing Innovations. How many products you got right now? Uh, Maybe about 12. What's the product that you're most proud of? I I guess I would say two of them, which is, we
1: have one called, it's a dead bait trolling on the boat, which is called the Nita rig. And it rigs up this dead bait and makes it look alive. Yeah. For uh, live baiting, it's called the live zip. proud of that. So it's a bridling system. So basically it enables you to put a hook on the fish where it doesn't move. Fish bites it, it's in the optimal position for
0: um, higher hookup ratios. So, so the hook doesn't move in the fish?
1: Yeah. So basically you're, you're um, bridling the head of the fish with a hook. Yeah. Okay, but, but the
0: fish is alive?
1: It's alive, yeah. And it so stays alive for a long time. Yeah. I know it sounds so cliche, but I have met so many cool people, different walks of life just through our business. Like, cause we have our stuff in Abu, D- uh, Abu Dhabi, mm-hmm. you know, just talking to the store owner, you know, like talking to people in France who have our stuff in France. Uh, Israel so it's mind-blowing how it opened up pathways you know and you know you think about it we're so different like us from people from Abu Dhabi but yet the common thread was fishing now it's it's like wow everyone loves fishing I mean you looking back into the Bible days fishing was big you know fishing was a big part of the Bible you know
0: for a guy who knows his fish which does he think is the best eating? He tells us which is his favorite, and he also tells us where you can find the best pastele around. So, What's your favorite fish? What, what's, what's the best eating fish? Oh, man. Uku. We, we, our family love uku. We love
1: eating it all kinds. You of, can cook that fish all kinds of ways. My wife is putting a plug
0: on her. She's the best cook in the world. <laughs> Hey, I believe it. Well, I mean, she, with all the fish she must be bringing home, I bet she's got a lot of opportunity to experiment and all of that. It's, no, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I, I, I was surprised how good a cook she is. But. What's the favorite thing that, that you like that she makes? Or? I'm trying to get points right now, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what?
1: Oh, this is the game. This is, cause she's going to make this tonight. she makes The best pasteles stew, bro. Hustler, oh, she's like, oh no. But bro, she makes the best. Pasta. And she's not even Puerto Rican. I'm so good, bro. It's like uh it's Puerto Rican food. My wife's nationality, she's half black. What?
0: <laughs> she's
1: half Chinese, half Japanese. No, but no, um, she has a uh, gift from God to cook, definitely. Nice. Yeah mean the only thing she, she made for me i can tell you this she hates this story but she made me this thing and it tasted so bad what was it calamari, she made calamari. but it was the worst thing i've ate in my life <laughs> Worst thing. but since that day i everything has been home runs yeah yeah, yeah. so i can say that much and I, without
0: even flinching so yeah Well, you know, from from a fisherman to a a fisherman's wife, having good food on the table is always always, uh, a nice way to keep a a happy family.
1: Should I show you my belly to confirm my happiness? No, thank you. Guys,
0: guys, this isn't that kind of interview, but but thanks for the answer. (laughs) (laughs) What's your comfort food? Oh, comfort food. Oh, man.
1: Mexican. Mexican. Chicanos. I can eat Mexican every day. Every day. What's your favorite dish? Pastel stew from the wife.
0: (laughs) She's making that today. You know that, right? Oh, my gosh. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Nice. (laughs) All right. So, guys, last few questions. So, how do you take your coffee?
1: (laughs) I take it. Pretty much, I put, like, Three quarters coffee, one quarter cream, and like seven stevias. <laughs> it tastes like a poo
0: drink. Seven paps though, Dave. Seven paps, minimum. Of uh, stevia. And that's a lot of cream too. Like yeah. a one to four ratio of cream. or one. Yep, <laughs> <two four. laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. uh, all right. How do you have your eggs? Sunny side up for Locomoco, scrambled with rice. Okay, um, so I, I know what goes on the egg with the loco moco. It's the gravy. Um, With the eggs on the rice, you put anything? Uh, uh, maybe just a little bit ketchup. You're meeting up with some friends. May- maybe I'm in that group at a bar. What are you having? One of my
1: favorite drinks, the Bailey's on the Rocks. Oh, I love uh, Michelob Ultras. Yeah. And I love uh, Miller Lite in the bottle. Got to be bottle, though.
0: You go in there with... Is that the colonoscopy appointment that popped up? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get to that. Oh, man.
1: I'm so excited, man. I can't wait to be probed.
0: <laughs> what does turning 50 mean to you? <laughs> A lot of medications. <laughs> oh,
1: my gosh. Yeah, I just went to the pharmacist the other day. And I, this is what? looking old looks like picking up all these meds <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh gosh um i'm half cooked I, like i think i'm like man i, I gotta do things do more things on earth mm-hmm. um before i die and not necessarily worldly wise, but more more like um spiritually wise
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know what i'm saying and it, it bothers me that I don't I didn't. I don't think I did
0: enough. We've all had moments where we realize that something in our life is just not working out and decide to change the direction we're headed. For Guy, it happened when he was a young pilot climbing the ranks in Hawaiian Airlines and achieving all the benchmarks for success he thought he wanted. The,
1: the turning point in my life was... Um, I felt like I had everything on earth that I could possibly have. Cars, motorcycle, but like, it was one of those times, you know, like I had everything a, a dude would like in life.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, a
1: dude. I was pretty much single, but you know, I was clubbing, you know, yeah. and, uh, being, being kolohe. <laughs> and I um, had everything in life, but I just felt so empty. Yeah? Mm-hmm. The, the emptiest I ever felt in my life the best job in the world, but I just felt empty. So that was, that was, the, I knew I had to pursue something not of this world. You know, it's like, oh man, there's a day I go, I gotta go back to church. I gotta go back to church because I just felt so empty. And that was, honestly, that was it. Cause, but my, see, my whole life I was raised a Christian. It's just that that's when it really, really clicked. Like, oh, that's what was meant to feel empty. You know, because for me, Dave, I have almost died a couple times. So, and that wasn't really the the moment the eye opener. The eye opener was I felt empty, not because I almost died and I didn't die, because it was because of the emptiness. Mm-hmm. And and nothing is trippy because nothing in this world can fill that void. Like. Riches, women, material things can fill that void until I guess you experience God.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and it's and it's how can that be fake if I feel it physically? You know what I mean? It's it's weird, yeah, it's like a weird thing, but it's like that's that that's this what I it's the truth for me, you know. I feel like I'm in a good place, um, but it's a never-ending um, strive to do, do God's will. You know what I mean?
0: Please thank Kanoy for letting us take so much of your time today. I didn't think it was going to be four hours, but... Four hours of information? <laughs> I thought at most
1: I'd had ten minutes of information in my head. <laughs> pilots, are like, pilots are like fishermen. We like to tell stories. <laughs> <laughs> The inner lobe of the hippocampus is connected to the uh, biological system.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode of Primetime 89. I'd like to thank our guest, Gainita, for taking the time to talk story with us. I'd also like to thank everyone who helped put this together. Jamie Barboza and Nicole Yoshimitsu, Sean Maskell, Wendy Brown, and Kaylee Aquaro. And a special thank you to Dwayne Andres for the music and Elizabeth Matson with production and editing. I'm your host, David Mattson. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest updates and news on upcoming episodes. And join us again with another classmate on Primetime 89.